0: This is the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What's going on, Wildcaters? Welcome back to another episode of the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast. If you've been a regular listener of the show for a while, you know that we sat down with the largest computer chip manufacturer in the world a while back, NVIDIA, uh, to talk about all the work that they're doing in the energy space. Well, we randomly ended up getting connected with their biggest competitor, Intel, so we figured we'd give them also a chance to talk about all the work that they're doing across the industry as well. So, really good conversation, Uh, hope you guys enjoy it. But really quickly, before we get on the episode, let's take a few minutes to run through our TPH energy insight of the week. So, commodity investors are back in full force with record wagers on crops, metals, and oil. Obviously, if you're at rock bottom or at negative like we were in 2020, there's really nowhere to go but up. So, I think oil is going to rally. But you have some bold predictions as to where you think it's going to
1: go. I'm curious what your predictions are. We've talked about them a lot. But what's the time horizon for these predictions? Yeah. So, I think we were at the bar the other night. It's like a month and a half ago. I think David Ramson what was there. It was me, you, Trisha Curtis. And in in typical Trisha fashion, she was arguing with you. Trisha (laughs) argues about everything. So me and Trisha get into it, but I made a bold claim that we'd see $200 oil in the next three and a half years. And anyways, over the last couple of weeks, you know, we've seen a run up on oil uh, equities and, you know, people are, you know. John over at Well Database showed me his screenshot of Nog just running up. So the whole Nog crew over on Twitter, Big yeah. the biggest rally ever, yeah. all time highs. So, you know, a lot of things are booming in the market, but I think that there is a case for $200 oil. If you look at several different variables, I mean, one, you have these steep production declines in shale. So you're going to have this fall off in American production, all the capital is being sucked out of the space. You know, everyone says, oh, if you break that threshold of $100 oil, capital is going to come flowing back in. Well, where's it going to come flowing in from? Because institutional capital has said that they're not investing in oil and gas anymore due to ESG. So, you have this vacuum in the capital space. You have additional regulatory coming. And as I sent this tweet, you know, later, I think it was the next day, it came out that Biden is canceling the permit for the Keystone Pipeline. So, you're seeing the regulatory come into action right away. You have, you have OPEC making huge production cuts. And then I don't care what anyone says, demand is going to rise post COVID. People are going to be traveling on planes. They're going to be traveling in cars. So you put all those factors together, I could see $200 oil becoming a real thing. And I'm not saying it's rational, but I don't think negative $37 oil was rational either. Right. And if I would have told you that like oil was going to be negative 37, you would have thought I was batshit crazy too. So I think that, um, you know, that's, that's my bet. I'm putting it out there into the public ether. So you you tweeted about it and you got some feedback. Yeah, I got some feedback. And I mean, there's some really smart people in there. I mean, you know, you have Trisha. Trisha says that we won't, you know, $80 is the cap. You know, we're not going above 80. But you had other smart people in there. I mean, people that I really respect in the commodity space saying, yeah, you know, I could see 160. And so you had a lot of sentiment that will be at 150. You know, Robert Hefner sent me a piece that he had written last year that made a case for, I think it was $150 oil within a six month timeframe of when I said, so I'm putting it out there. You can come back to me in three and a half years if we're <laughs> not at $200 oil. But you remember, like I, I did the same thing with Bitcoin, $25,000 Bitcoin when it crashed last time. And here we are. So I'm on a run. We had the 420 oil, oil hit $4.20 on 420. Kept going. stop there. Didn't stop there. 20, didn't stop there but <laughs> so we'll see. And you know I think that, um, obviously your commodities traders and there'll be a lot of people that are benefiting off of exposure to public EMPs that are benefiting benefiting from that so you know I think that we're in the darkest days right now on oil hope we are in the darkest days and hopefully it'll turn around
0: yeah I think there's uh, there's only one direction to go from here and so hopefully things kind of stabilize out give people hope get more people back in jobs the industry is obviously changing it is contracting you know this is unlike any other downturn we've ever experienced but I think we've, uh, we've got a good outlook on the future. It's going to be different, but I think it's going to be good. So, without uh, waiting any longer, let's go ahead and get right in the episode. What's up, Wildcatters? Welcome back to another episode of the Willing & Gas Startups Podcast. Quarantine edition, AKA remote edition, still. Uh, we've got our buddy. Uh, am, I, am I pronouncing your name right? Is it Manas? Yes. Okay. Manas. And is it Pothic? Patek,
2: yes. Patek, okay, okay. I'm notorious for just like completely butchering (laughs) things. You are one of those who (laughs) have pronounced it correctly in the first time, so. good (laughs)
0: job. (laughs) So Manish, you were, uh, you're actually in what, Phoenix, right? Yes. Okay, so we we weren't able to get him in, uh, into Houston to do an in-person podcast, so we made another exception doing this remotely. Um, You were with Intel, correct? Yes, Intel Corporation. Mm -hmm. And so- we somehow connected on LinkedIn and I was like, okay, well, we talked to NVIDIA. Uh, We'd learned everything about everything that they were doing in energy. And I was like, well, now I'm curious about like, what is Intel doing in energy? And so uh, why don't you start off really quickly, just kind of high level overview of, uh, of of you and kind of your role there and and what Intel is doing. And then we'll kind of dive deeper into uh, your story.
2: Right. So I'm globally, I lead for oil and gas and energy at Intel Corporation. And, uh, you know, uh, what we do basically for for the energy sector is we are a silicon company right so we provide chips uh you know we go long back the probably the first laptop that you bought had intel inside written on it so that means we provide the the computer chips for for compute to happen uh you know be it your laptop be it the cloud be it edge you know be on prem off prem so uh we we have been a long standing partner for the industry. So just like all other chip manufacturers, we provide chips, but then we are not just the chip providers. We are not just the semiconductor companies, but we have a full stack solution. So there is a hardware and then, then on the top of hardware, there is a software stack and we provide free, mostly free software um, that optimizes compute on our hardware. So. Uh, The hardware being CPU, integrated GPU, VPUs, all the silicon that can span all the way from laptop to your edge and and the cloud.
0: And so you guys are in both oil and gas and then just kind of broader alternative forms of energy as well?
2: Right. So uh, we target, I personally started off this uh, role targeting oil and gas, but, you know, like the industry is undergoing a transition from purely oil and gas to more like, you know, integrated energy industry. Uh, uh, we we are partnering inside Intel, you know, with the folks who have been uh, very heavily involved in renewable side of the business. And you know, so we are one Intel energy team, just like the industry is looking like an energy industry, not just oil and gas, but you know, uh, a truly integrated energy. So tell us a little bit about
1: your background. Do you come from energy? Do you come from oil and gas? Um, tell us a little bit about that first.
2: Right. So I'm uh, going, uh, you know, all the way back to India. So I, I did my uh, I'm born and brought up in India. I did my uh, master's and bachelor's in geology, geosciences in Indian School of Mines uh, in Denbad India. That's like, you know, MIT, MIT kind of institute in India for oil and gas. Um so from there, I, I came to United States, started my PhD in chemical engineering at University of Utah, worked with uh, an institute called Energy and Geoscience Institute. It's a consortium of like, uh, uh, now it's like some 30 odd companies, but uh, at the time there are 50 plus energy companies, oil and gas companies that uh, you know uh, uh, sh- basically asked the institute to uh, do research on a, on a shared... Our, uh, our model basically everybody is pitching in some R&D dollars, and the institute is doing research for them. Uh, so did my PhD in, in chemical engineering, looking into how do we optimize oil production from shale rocks, all the Eagle Ford play and the and the you know in North Dakota and, and Bakken and and others. Then part of my PhD was using machine learning and AI to optimize this oil production. Uh, then I got an opportunity to work with Intel Corporation. I started my career with Intel. Uh, you know, my my wife was working for Intel, and uh, we didn't want this long distance—Houston, Portland, or Houston, Phoenix. So I decided to hop on um, uh, with, with Intel uh, as a process engineer. And then my basically oil and gas DNA was DNA was speaking up. So. I decided decided to take this role, which was more around uh, uh, helping our customers and and partners in in energy with uh, uh, the technology that Intel provides.
1: So it's pretty interesting when you went over to Intel you weren't even you know really looking to work in the energy uh, sector and you still found your your way back there somehow you know once you got
2: inside Intel. <laughs> just like, you know, uh, the the folks who come from oil and gas background, they they have this this DNA and that, you know, you can't get <laughs> oil and gas you out of you, get, you know, no matter what the industry is transitioning to, no matter what. I still want to, I still love geology. I still love doing geoscience. I still love engineering, petroleum engineering and, and whatnot. So,
1: yeah. So, what's it like, you know, being in Phoenix, you know, not centrally located to, um, you know, not only oil and gas, but other energy verticals as well. Um, You know, is there a a big presence there for the energy industry for you? Or, I mean, do you find it that it's all, you know, located in your traditional energy cities such as Houston?
2: Yeah, so it's traditionally uh, located in the cities like Houston. So basically that meant that I had to travel a lot, a lot of business travels to Houston for meetings and whatnot. Uh, But since COVID hit, uh, all the business travels uh, are on pause right now at, at Intel, Uh, So everything is remote and now it's no big deal because, you know, uh, uh, even folks who are in Houston are doing remote Mm -hmm. meetings. So (laughs) it's okay (laughs) for now, uh, but uh, we'll see where future takes, you know, eventually maybe if, if there's more business needs in Houston, I might move to Houston. Who knows?
1: Yeah, I find it, you know, this is kind of going off on a adjacent conversation here, but, you know, obviously everything that's happened in the oil and gas industry, you have a lot of geoscience and geotechnical professions that are looking to pivot industries, right? And so you have a lot of smart geologists and engineers. And I I find it, you know, really interesting that we've talked to these companies, you know, Intel and NVIDIA and Salesforce and your very traditional tech companies and they still have you know these energy departments that are growing you know is that a path forward for people in the oil and gas industry you know if they're wanting to get more involved in tech do you see these practices at tech companies growing and they're going to need more geo science professionals is that you know is that a fair assumption
2: yeah so i'm can't comment on what intel is going to do in future but looking in general in the tech industry you're going to see more and more of these domain specific subject matter experts uh, you know, moving to um, uh, these tech companies because ultimately it is the tech company, the Silicon Valley, who's helping with the, all the digitalization effort in the industry, in the energy industry, and and hopefully, uh, you know, these digital technologies are also going to be the key enablers for uh, green economy, so for the green energy and the energy transition that's happening. So uh, you do need. Uh, Domain expertise, right? Uh, to in order to help industry uh, take that uh, digital path, uh, AI analytics and everything is good, but you need the basic understanding of the of the rocks and the and the reservoirs in order to uh, make an impact. Yeah, I
1: mean that domain expertise is really important, right? Even when you're looking at applying technology, it helps to have someone that understands the underlying industry that you're applying it to.
2: Right, and I've been telling this, uh, you know, all the way uh, even in my grad school. Right, that it's not like predicting what movie you want to watch next. Right, and it's not like predicting if you bought this item, do you? You probably would like this item too. Right, it's more than that. It's it's using analytics to to understand where the oil and gas deposits are. How do you efficiently get this out to the surface while keeping the you know car, uh, carbon footprint to the minimum? And that requires a lot of understanding of the reservoir and rocks, like I said earlier. So, uh, truly, what,
0: yeah. Who are y'all's, uh, I mean, who, who makes up the, the biggest portion of y'all's clients? Are you guys working mostly with EMPs? Are you guys mostly OFS companies? Are you upstream, are you downstream, midstream?
2: Yeah, so we cover all over all, the place. <laughs> yeah, we we cover midstream, upstream, and downstream, all, all three. Uh, my primary focus is upstream, just because of my background, okay. and ups, upstream side. Uh, but the way Intel works is basically we we work with end users, you know, the NPs and the service providers, the the service providers in the energy sector. Uh, we work with them to understand what their problems are, what are they facing, and you know, to to understand the problems, and then uh, we innovate with them. And then the solution that we create, we 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 work with the partners who can take that solution to the uh, uh, ENPs and the service providers. So we don't sell directly to any of these companies anything, but then we work with them to understand what are their pain points, what are they looking for in the future, what what what, what problems do they have currently, and then bring that knowledge uh, and the pain points to the to the product team in Intel and innovate for them, and then push it through the partners.
0: Are most of the partners that you work with, are they technology partners? Are they consulting firm partners? Is it all of the above?
2: Right. So it's more or less like OEMs, ODMs in the, you know, in the former world where you didn't have cloud technology, you know, you're looking into these HPs, Dells, and Lenovo's of the world who basically uh, fit our silicon in, in their uh, compute solutions, be it a cluster, be it you know, on-prem, be it a laptop or enterprise desktop, and then take it to the companies like uh, the, the oil and gas companies that we know of. But uh, now we also work with cloud providers, right? So we have our products, meaning our products, when I say I products, I mean uh, CPUs like uh, Intel, Atom, Intel Core, Intel, Xeon, all these chips, we have all of these chips, uh, uh, you know, existing um, uh, especially the Xeons in the cloud providers. So we work with um, our cloud friends like AWS and Azure and Googles of the world and now and IBMs of the world to uh, bring basically our technology to the end user.
0: This episode is brought to you by Well Database. Now one year ago, Well Database released their light plan, meaning free data for everyone. Since then, they've added over 2,000 new users in 2020 and have quickly become the go-to data provider for people needing quick and affordable access to data. Now, once again, they're going where the competition can't by releasing their new enterprise plan. So here's a quick rundown on that. As an enterprise customer, you'll have unlimited access to their entire data set through their portal, their API integration, and cloud databases hosted on AWS, Azure, and Snowflake. So you basically get the data however you need it. People who've switched to Well Database Enterprise have saved 50% on average, and in times like these, that adds up. You know what that means? That means more people and jobs, which is exactly what we want to see. So go check the guys over at Well Database out at welldatabase.com and tell them we sent you.
1: So when you look at the landscape, you know, as Jake mentioned, we had NVIDIA on and, you know, they're really applying their GPUs to the energy industry. I imagine that, that you know, they're a competitor to Intel, um, you know, just from a consumer standpoint, you know, you look at our computers, you know, we have processors, you know, Intel i5, i7, whatever it may be. So for the energy industry, I mean, is this something that you guys, you know, one, are you guys providing the same, you know, type of GPU processing um, hardware for the energy companies. And then I also want to kind of get into the software side because you broke this up into two parts, you know, the the hardware and the software side. I just want to understand, you know, what exactly you guys are doing on the, on the physical hardware side for the energy companies. And then we can wrap that up into the software side too.
2: Right. So, I mean, Intel goes long back, right. We were founded almost 50 years back in the Silicon Valley. So, uh, some of the first, Compute chips that existed were from Intel, so an industry I think oil and gas industries even goes further back. Uh, but if you look at the the compute needs and and how compute in the oil and gas industry expedited the exploration process, uh, you know it started somewhere around when the computer chips became available in the market, right? So. Uh, And some of the initial use cases were around seismic processing, seismic imaging, you have these raw seismic data coming from streamers and ships and, and trucks, and in order to expedite the processing of that raw data into something that is more readable, and uh, something that a geoscientist can interpret, you need processing power, you need computers to do that job. And that's typically a high performance compute. Uh, you have reverse time migrations, you have forward uh, full wave inversion, FWI, RTM, these kind of algorithms uh, that go decades back, uh, but they need uh, high performance compute in order to run. So Intel chips were, you know, some of the initial chips that were used in order to uh, do these mathematical calculations and these uh, partial differential equation calculations to, uh, to do the seismic processing. So, you know, I guess my our journey with oil and gas industry started all the way back when the seismic processing started. Uh, but since then, uh, the HPC solutions have uh, uh, become uh, more efficient. Our chips have become more efficient. We have started to work together so that uh, you have an algorithm, we have a chip. How your algorithm works best on our chip? So we work with these customers, you know, oil and gas customers, to make sure that their in-house algorithm is working best for our chips. And that's typically the HPC for a long, long time, but then AI came, and 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 artificial intelligence is. Uh, uh, s- not replacing but supplementing some of these HPC workflows, right? We are seeing convergence of HPC and AI in many of these workflows, be it reservoir um, simulation, be it seismic processing and interpretation or any other workflow. You have some sort of HPC uh, calculation uh, and then followed by AI calculations. They are intrinsically or extrinsically coupled together. Uh, So now you are looking at how can we do HPC and AI both on a, on, a, on a same platform. Because last thing you want is you have petabytes of seismic data sitting in an HPC compute solution and then you're moving it to an AI compute solution just to perform a different workload on a same data. That's not efficient, that is very painful. So bringing your HPC AI on a common platform so that your, your underlying base platform, the hardware is same and you can perform whatever uh, uh, compute solution you wanna perform on it, HPC, AI, is basically a more efficient way uh, to, to look at the uh, problem. So what we do is uh, we um, provide a common platform, HPC and AI, a common platform based on CPU, that can deliver optimum performance for for your uh, reservoir simulations or seismic or any other workload. So uh, that's the hardware story. Now the software story is um, uh, basically, if you have a specific set of uh, workload, we provide free tools and free middlewares and free software that you can download from Githubs and Intel websites that basically helps you leverage and get the most out of our silicon so you already paid for our silicon but in order to get the optimum performance from our silicon you we, we recommend customers to use our versions of tensorflow our versions of pytorch our versions of uh, all these ai frameworks that are tuned by intel for you to uh, uh, basically perform the, uh, uh, to optimize your workloads for, for Intel hardware.
0: Outside of, outside of the G and G stuff, I know we've talked a lot about, you know, geospatial data and how big those data sets can be in the compute power. And it's always been that way. Right. But outside of that, what are, what are your clients using say like the AI, for example, like what are some of the use cases of that AI outside of the
2: G and G space? Right. So, The way we look at it is uh, following, you have domain-specific AI problems in oil and gas, and you have very general AI problems that you can basically leverage the already existing solutions in other industry verticals. So when when you are talking about GNG, that's basically the domain-specific AI problem, right? But then there's other kind of problem like worker safety, are, is your worker wearing required PPE when it's entering a drilling zone or a refinery? That kind of problem exists in all manufacturing plants. Be it Intel manufacturing plant, be it Nike shoe manufacturing, you know, you, you want to make sure that your workers are safe enough, and you know, you can use computer vision algorithms to identify if your worker is wearing uh, proper PPE. So those kind of use cases are uh, low-hanging fruits are easy to deploy have already seen success in in a different in, industry vertical and these are the some of the ones that are outside gng space or are, are are seeing lot of traction in oil and gas and when we talk about these use cases some of these are like require real time processing so that means the model the ai model needs to do the analytics at the edge when i say edge i mean near the source of the data itself if you have a worker who is entering a red zone in a drilling platform you don't want your your camera to send uh, pictures to the cloud and then cloud to send it back to you that hey it's a red zone you know by that time you know it's already a safety risk so you need a real time processing at the source of data and this is what the edge compute uh, the benefits of the edge compute, and we are very big in edge computing. In fact, um, a lot of the tr- silicon today that exists for edge computing comes from, sel- uh, from Intel, and uh, and these use cases are uh, tested successfully elsewhere. So it's very easy for for customers to to hop onto these.
0: So to just to, to break that down really quickly as a definition, if I understand edge computing correctly, I want to try to explain it uh, as, as simply as possible. Edge computing, as opposed to being able to send this up to the cloud and doing high computation stuff and then waiting on that delay to send back, in places where you may not have maybe the best connectivity or there could be some sort of lag, you are essentially taking hardware devices and putting it on site. It could be at a facility. It could be on a well site. It could be anything like that. Doing the high compute things like AI there, and then instantly having, like you said, in a safety instance, some kind of alert, right, as opposed to having to send that off, process it, send it back. Is that correct?
2: Yes. And so that's edge computing for you. And some of the bottlenecks, uh, you know, uh, in cloud computing is basically latencies and the bandwidth issues, like you said, you know, some of many of our operations are in remote locations, offshore platforms. Right. So you, you want these alerts to happen, uh, like the compute for the alerts to happen right there. And, and, and edge competent can allow you to do that.
1: All right. So going back to a point that you had about, you know, the seismic data and seismic processing and reservoirs, uh, simulation, you know, these are really big data sets and, how does that work with artificial intelligence, especially on the reservoir simulation? Because, you know, as we looked at the shale revolution, the the really kind of allure of shale was that it could be this manufacturing process and it could just be repeated over and over again. And from that, you know, you have really standardized data sets. But in the conventional space, you know, especially offshore, there's so many variables that go into the geology and the reservoir how does that affect machine learning in those places? And how do you guys help customers out with that, both from a hardware and from a software perspective?
2: Right, so like if you look at how machine learning differs or AI or you know, any of these neural network differs from solving a conventional reservoir problem versus unconventional, uh, there would be change in the variables that go in and making and building these models. So if you're talking about uh, Shale Reservoir in Eagle 4, Texas, right? So the the input variables that go in 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 into the model and uh, deep neural network model or a uh, you know uh, any other machine learning model would differ from when you're talking about building the similar model uh, like for oil prediction predict, prediction or gas prediction for conventional reservoir. So for unconventional, you the 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 set of things that would be more impactful. Uh, in input variables would be what is the fracture length? You know what is the half length of the fracture? What is the what is the pumping pressure looking like when you are fracking the rock? And and all those variables that do not even exist when you talk about a conventional reservoir. So when you're talking about conventional reservoirs, you will have different set of variables which are more important. So like you mentioned, Colin, you know what are the, what is the porosity and the permeability of the of the um, of the rock, right? In in shale reservoirs, you can frag frag the shit out of it, and you know at times people don't care about all of these <laughs> geoscience parameters, although they are important, I, I must say. Yeah. But in conventional,s you are at the mercy of how the rock is going to behave, like right. So so you do in uh, you do need to take in into account when you are building your model what are those geoscience parameters looking like, which you might you know uh, tend to ignore in 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 a unconventional shale reservoir kind of Thing. Although half of my PhD was building those models for shale reservoirs, and the top five parameters that came out, which influence how your your reservoir is going to behave, did include some of the geolo- geological parameters. So it's not about just frack the heck out of it. You know, you do need to consider some geological aspects uh, aspects of it. But from from the hardware perspective it's just another AI model so your your integrated GPUs or your CPUs uh, that work uh, for one model will work for the other as well so from the hardware perspective is no difference uh, but yes from the software perspective there is difference now here is where the subject matter expert do play a big role right so if you are if you are building that model you you need to know what are the input parameters the key performance, Uh, indicators in, in your one model versus the other model. If you do not include those key parameters that define how your shield rock is going to produce, you will train the model, your AI model on wrong set of parameters, right? So this is where the domain knowledge is very important. And similarly for the conventional reservoirs, right? A domain expert, a geoscientist, a reservoir engineer would know what are the parameters that I need to include as set of input variables when I am training the AI model. And I think this is where uh, you know the 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 geoscience knowledge and the reservoir knowledge comes really handy.
0: So this is obviously the willingness Us podcast. So let's talk. Are you guys doing? Any work with startups? I know know we talked about that with with NVIDIA. Do you guys have like a startup program? Do you guys have any resources for startups? Uh, Let's dive into that a little bit.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, we have a couple of uh, programs specifically for startups. And uh, there is one called Intel AI Builder Program. You know, you can just Google Intel AI Builder. There is one which is more specific to the edge computing. It's called Intel AI in Production uh, but the, you know, uh, if you talk about Intel AI builder program, basically we vet, um, uh, we, we have this submission process where startups come in and submit their applications. So what we are looking for is how, uh, Intel can help these startups with Intel technologies. So we work with the startups from both the software perspective, as well as fine tune their software, their application for our hardware, Intel chips. And, um, well, you sign up for that. We there's a vetting process, but if you are, uh, you know, accepted in the program, uh, you're automatically also eligible for fund for for being a candidate for funding from Intel Capital. Uh, Intel Cap uh, funds a lot of startups around the globe, so you know that's a good uh, one. Good benefit there. Um, then there is the get to market and go to market piece that we help it. So we provide co-marketing uh, efforts uh, to these startups so we bring them into intel ecosystem we help them uh, fine tune their application develop their application for intel hardware and then we take we 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 work with them to take that solution to the market so and you know we can we can use all the resources that we have uh for the get to market and go to market for all you know for for no cost to the startups uh, uh, and, and i think that's a that's a good benefit
1: yeah so you guys essentially are running you know it's it's much like an incubator and accelerator where you guys will dedicate resources um to the community help them out and then if it's a technology that you guys think have a lot of synergy or find it interesting there's actually the opportunity um to get some capital from intel
2: correct yeah and i mean i think in the ai builder program we have like 250 something uh, wow. uh, uh companies that are part of it you know so that's a lot of companies yeah, yeah. So it's not specifically for energy, but if you go to AI Builder website, you know, you can look up uh, the energy and oil and gas specific um, application that are hosted there on the marketplace.
1: So how does that work? Like if a startup goes through ELS program, I mean, obviously um, with COVID, everything changes, but, you know, pre-COVID, post-COVID, do these uh, startups have to, you know, come out to Phoenix or, you know, somewhere um, where Intel is centrally located um, for
2: the program or is it all ran remote? So I think Intel is a very big company. We are global. Uh, Phoenix is not even the headquarters of Intel. We are headquartered in Santa Clara in in Bay Area, Silicon Valley. I mean, I think we were one of the first ones to create the Silicon Valley. (laughs) You know, it's called Silicon (laughs) for a reason. And we are a Silicon company. (laughs) uh and so you guys are the reason it's called silicon valley <laughs> Second, jake
0: i said you guys are literally the reason it's called silicon valley
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah absolutely yeah, yeah that's that's what i think it is it is the case uh but so it's not phoenix but yes if if, if it requires a one-on-one or you know like some sort of in-person meetings definitely it would be one of the Many Intel campuses we have. It spans from Oregon, Portland, to Phoenix, to Santa Clara, to around the globe. Uh, but with COVID, everything is virtual, and uh, you know, uh, tech companies in general have been very successful in in uh, uh, continuing their businesses despite uh, everything going virtual. Because you know, we we used all the technologies that we produce in house. So Intel is functioning with uh, you know full um uh full uh, uh in in full capacity so all these startups are still coming in and and all everything is virtual today
1: as i was gonna say you know that book that i've been re- reading measure what matters is all about how intel used okrs and goal setting to skill their company so if you guys want a good book to read and kind of some insight of how intel skilled their company uh check it out it's called measure I thought what you're matters. about to
0: grill manas on his okrs
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> Manas, do you guys still use OKRs at Intel? Um,
2: I think we have uh, a different name maybe, but uh, yeah. I believe, uh, the core values and the, and the core things that our founders had in mind is still, uh, that still exists in the company culture and the, and, and the, among the com- company's employees. Got you.
0: So there's a, obviously, you know, ESG has become something that's uh, pretty top of mind, things like carbon capture being talked about a ton. Are you guys able to leverage some of your technology, the AI to deploy any of these kind of solutions with uh, any of these operators?
2: Right. So what we are doing is basically we are helping the operators and the industry in general to build these solutions by providing our technology in the consortium such as Open uh, Footprint or OSDU. I don't know if you have heard of OSDU. It's a consortium of 150 companies now in the ecosystem, in the energy ecosystem and uh, you know we we are a uh, contributor there uh, we are also contributing uh, in open footprint which is a different consortium under the umbrella of open Foot, under the umbrella of open group uh, uh, and uh, you know we work with companies like shells and others to create uh, a common data platform that can enable measuring your carbon footprint end to end in your value driven supply chain so if you uh, if you produce a product uh, you know, now in this greener economy, you need to make sure that what is the carbon footprint associated with that product, all the way from the raw materials to the end of line, right? And and one way to do that is basically using these data platforms that can enable end-to-end calculation, and then use AI on top of those data platform to fine-tune your supply chain, say. You have, uh, what, what can you do? What are the knobs that you have that you can turn in order to reduce the carbon footprint of your product, right? So uh, Intel from both uh, hardware as well as the software perspective helps these consortiums and, and these industry bodies and the standards group to define his standards. So at this point, we actually lost Manas'
0: audio. The recorder actually dropped it. So we're just going to go ahead and cut right into the end. Perfect.
1: Well, hey, I appreciate you coming on the show and schooling us on Intel and Silicon. And it's, uh, yeah, it's interesting since I've read that book lately, recently to see, you know, how the company started and grew and then how you guys continue to grow and scale into energy verticals, especially as the world's changing and is uh, utilizing machine learning. So it's all exciting stuff. Appreciate it, man.
0: Absolutely. I think this is wildly fascinating. Like I said, you know, Intel is literally, if you look back at the history of Silicon Valley, it is called Silicon Valley due to Intel being the first big corporation that really took off there. And we've always said that we kind of lived at the intersection of Silicon Valley and oil and gas. And so it all kind of comes full circle. I think this is really, really neat. So, Manas, thanks again for coming on the show. Uh, if you like the show, please take two seconds. Uh, leave us a rating review. Afford it all to all your colleagues, your family, your friends. Spam everybody. And we'll catch you guys on the next episode. Cut, 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 cut.